Okay, so, Parshat Kitavo. What a great Parsha to start this year, Kitavo El When you come into Eretzah, could you think of a more appropriate beginning to your year? Right? So, I want to tell you a story. I'm not sure you'll remember the Dvar Torah, but I'm sure you remember this story. With apologies to Shana Beck, guys, I gave up trying to figure out which stories you heard, right? So, So when you get to this, these types of experiences in the army, um, you can imagine that there's a lot of training that goes into it, right? And, um, you know, I kind of started this story yesterday, but didn't really get to finish it, because there's one detail that, that blew my mind. So we're on this patrol in Lebanon, and um, they teach you when you're, you know, when you're, when you're in officer's course, that you have to become like a computer. Okay, there's something in the army called dapaot. A dapa is a derech pulai sharit. It's a possible outcome. And basically what you do is when you plan a mission, you try to imagine anything that could happen. And then you think about what would you do in that event, and then you practice that. What do you do if the commander gets killed? Who takes over? What do you do if he gets killed? What do you do if he gets killed? What happens with machine gun jams? What happens if you get to the drop zone and the helicopter doesn't show up? What happens if you're in the wrong drop zone? And a million different other possibilities. What do you do if you have no ammo? What do you do if somebody gets wounded, et cetera, et cetera? And the truth is that this is a skill for life. You know, you start, uh, you go on a teal. What happens if the Muslims start praying and we get stuck in the hole and so on and so forth, right? So when you're walking, you know, walking in Lebanon, you know, you, you go out for what's called a p'tichat You're opening up a, uh, a particular stretch of the highway. Israeli army vehicular traffic was forbidden at night. It was too dangerous in the area we were in. And in the morning, usually like after dawn, patrols all over the line would go out and check the roads, make sure there were no, you know, funny looking devices with wires, fresh dirt that was moved. You would do this with a Bedouin tracker. Um, the Israeli army employs Bedouin and Jews trackers. They grow up learning how to find their sheep. These guys are amazing, but that's a story for another time. And, um, and you're walking along to see and make sure that things are clear. And once you get through your five, six, seven kilometer stretch, then you give the all clear, and then traffic can start moving. So this is obviously intense. Now, while you and then you're also doing what's called a tavas, which means you're checking the border. Are there tracks? Could terrorists have snuck in overnight? Protecting the border, whatever else you're doing. So when you're doing these treks, what you're really doing is, on the one hand, it's beautiful. I mean, it's really the area I was in was gorgeous. Shuf Mountains rise up behind us. Mediterranean Sea in the distance. You walk through cherry orchards. I mean, it's unbelievable, right? It's so sad that Lebanon has been at war for so long because it's a beautiful country. So on the one hand, you're like, Yishtabach Shemo. You know, like I used to say Birkota Shachar. We'll get this year to go through Birkota Shachar and what they mean. I used to say the Birkota Shachar like as I was doing these patrols. Like, Baruch Hashem that Hashem gives us the ability to know right from wrong. You know, Mechil that every step we take is all planned. Like all these ideas are going through your head. So on the one hand, it's beautiful. On the other hand, you're in Lebanon, you're leading a group of 12 men, and you know that they could open up on you any minute. So you're computing. What would I do if it happened now? Well, first of all, if it happened now, where would I do it from? Well, that little grove of trees there, that's a good ambush site. So what would I do if right now they opened up on me from behind those trees? Well, that little ditch over there, that's a good cover fire position. We take cover over here. Then we do a niguf. We do a, I don't know what a niguf is in English, uh, a round. Pardon? Flank. We'd flank. Oh, yeah. We'd flank from the right. Right? And, uh, 
But then you walk another 50 yards and you can't use that ditch anymore. It's back there. And the grove is already there. Like, well, if it happened now, maybe it would happen from behind that ridge. So then we take that hill over there as a covered position and you keep doing this. And it becomes a game. It's like a habit. And it can be very tiring, but whatever. And you have to understand, it's like days go by, weeks go by, sometimes months go by, nothing happens. But you keep doing this because they've ingrained in you that if it ever does happen, it's on you. And then one day it happens. One day it just hits. And everything, right? Just from chill to madness in a second. There were three terrorists, they were behind a low ridge, they opened up on us, and everything you're doing is right. Because you've practiced this so many times. It's, it's not, there's no courage involved here. You're just mitogal, you're experienced. You've just been doing this again and again and again in your head. And you were just thinking, what would you do if they opened up? And they open up. So you say, okay, everybody hit the dirt. And do a go-go crab. You roll out this way, you roll out that way. And you've practiced in your mind like 50 times just that morning. So you set up the cover fire position over there. And they start pouring fire into this uh, terrorist position. And you roll out this way. And you have to be in You have to kind of leapfrog. This guy's firing while this guy comes until you get close enough. And everything's going great, right? Except for one detail. You see, about half an hour earlier, right? When we would get to a certain point, when we finished our p'tichatzir, when the road was clear, we still had hours of duty ahead of us, but now the first hour of that piece is done. So then I would always, like, give the guys a break. You know, we'd go... Actually, we were, you know... Some of the time we were in an area near Beirut and there was a store you could go in and buy Cokes and Diet Cokes and whatever. Sometimes i go get a six-pack of soda, right? Six-packs of soda, right? And, you know, and there's a whole way you set this up. And this particular morning, I noticed that one of the guys on the patrol, I don't recognize. Now, we're in a small mutzav. This is like a position for a machlaka, for a platoon. I mean, there's like 20 of us, 30 of us. It's not that many guys. And I know all the guys. They're my unit. And there's a guy here. He's a short little wispy wimp of a guy. I mean, I'm not a big guy, but this guy is like, you know, right? Like thin, little beard, luck, whatever. I don't recognize this guy. So I go over to him and start talking to him. Now that morning we had gotten out late and I had to do a quick briefing. Did just quickly check gear, whatever I could do. It was still dark. We're getting out the gate. Because if you don't get out in time, you start to get yelled at. You don't want to get yelled at by the company commander. Then it might get up to the battalion commander because the whole road doesn't get their convoys, their emissions. They can't happen until you finish your job. So we did a quick briefing and just went out. And I hadn't noticed this guy. So I started talking to him like, Miata. I figured he was a Miluimnik. He joined her. It turned out that he was what's called an Ayn Rabatz. He was the assistant to the rabbi of the battalion. Literally a rabbi, the Rav Tzai. And they had come to our battalion. They were like koshering kitchens and stuff like that. And so they attached him to our unit to check the koshers from the kitchen and kosher Caleb, right? Now, he wasn't trained. He's not a battle-worthy soldier. He wasn't trained to go on a patrol. He was trained to do guard duty. Like, to train a guy enough that he can do guard duty, he's got to spend two weeks of training, go to gun ranges, whatever, and he's done. He hasn't done the months and months of training that everybody else has done, right? He has no business being on this patrol. He doesn't know what he's doing. He's an assistant to the rabbi. Now, it turned out that one of the guys got a pass from the company commander, and he wanted to get out. But he was supposed to come on the patrol. So he asked this guy, could he switch him for guard duty? Because then he could do four hour shift of guard duty and then get out with a ride. And this guy would be on like the eight hour patrol. Now this guy was insisting the rabbi. He was so excited to go out on patrol instead of doing boring guardians. He said, sure. N- nobody, and I don't know if this guy understood what he was doing and what the mistake was, the guy from my unit, although 
I tore him a new one, whatever, when he got back from the base. But this guy had no business being on a patrol. He was carrying a, a Lao anti-tank missile. He had no, he was holding it backwards. He had no idea what to do with it. We're in the middle of a patrol. Now, really what I should do is you should go back to base and we should get a worthy soldier. You can't have a guy like that on a patrol. But if I do that, they're going to find out that I hurried this out and that I let a guy come out of this patrol. That's not going to be good. He's going to get in trouble. I'm going to get in trouble. Plus, like, what do you do? You're all the way, you're two hours walk away from the base. You have a mission to do. You can't just go back. This is complicated. So I said to him, all right, listen, here's what's going to be. I obviously gave the loud to somebody else. And I walked over to Beton. Beton was a big guy. He was our heavy machine gunner. He had the heavy machine gun. And I said to this guy, listen, you're just going to carry the extra ammo for the machine gun. That's your job today. Right? There's like a pouch with like extra ammo for the machine gun. Right? And nothing happens because we've been there like a couple months and nothing's ever happened, so I'm not worried about it, right? But if anything does happen, since you have no idea what to do, all you have to do is be next to Beton. You see Beton? You see this guy? This is what you have to do. Just get next to Beton. And, if you're, and I tell Beton, listen, if anything does happen, he's not going to know how to load your machine gun. He's not going to be able, you're going to have to feed it yourself. Okay, but right. And I figured that'll be fine. But of course, the Kosh Baruch has a fantastic sense of humor. The one day something's going to happen is this day. So everything's going on, and we're hitting the ground, we're rolling, whatever it might be, right? And I had completely forgotten about this guy, because everybody knows what they're doing. And we get to that point, where we're about to do this ambush, that moment that I talked about the other night where I was terrified, and I suddenly realized... What happened to the Zion Rabats? And I look over at the cover of our position. They're doing what they're supposed to be doing. But they're missing a guy. There's four of them. There's not five of them. Where's this guy? And I turn around. I'm looking around. And I see this guy. He is lying on the ground. Right? He's like got his gun. He has no idea what's flying. Right? And I suddenly realize he's in the wrong... Now, he's got all the extra ammo for the machine gun. The machine gun is pouring all this heavy machine gun ammo, right? They're firing at this terrorist position. And everybody thinks this is great. Everybody thinks everything's fine. Everything's, I'm the only guy who knows this is about to hit the fan because he's going to run out of ammo. And when he runs out of ammo, the guy carrying the extra ammo is back there. And you got to understand, like the terrorists are behind this ridge. They're keeping their heads down, but they're like firing everywhere, you know, trying to throw grenades, whatever, like bullets are flying. It's crazy. And this guy is like, you know, the 90-pound weakling with the wispy beard, he's like your caricature of what a soldier shouldn't be, and he's lying back there with the ammo. And I'm freaking out, because I know it's about to hit the fan. If the machine gun goes quiet, and the terrorists hear that they're not firing the machine gun, they're gonna pop up their head. We're 20 yards away. If they pop up their heads when we're sort of running towards them, they could cut us down. This is, this is about to go really south. And I'm not even sure what to do. Should I pause, should I halt? That was yesterday's discussion, or the other day. And we're over, and I look around, and I suddenly stare at this guy. Because I told him, just stick with Beton. But I can't blame him, you know? We hit the ground, and he, he was terrified, like, well... So he looks at me, and I look at him, and I got this look, I guess, of panic on my face. And he looks at me, and he suddenly realized, like, like I go to go to Beton. And I'm like, but I don't know what to do. What am I going to do? Yell at him like this? So this guy, you have to understand, he's a Nebuchadnezzar. He's a nebuchadnezzar. He's like 90 pounds. He's like this little nebuchadnezzar. He doesn't even have, like, there's a way to tuck your, 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 the bottom of your uniform, the trouser legs, into gumiot that looks like worthy of battle. He's got one in, one out. His shirt is hanging. He looks like a nebuchadnezzar. Like, he doesn't even know how to hold his gun. 
And he realizes all of a sudden he's supposed to be over there. Now, he's not an idiot. So he, what he does, I promise you, I've never seen anything like this in my life. It was unbelievable. He's got a big smile on his face because he suddenly realizes he's supposed to be over there. But there's no way he can get there, right? Because he doesn't even know. Like, when you run under fire, you count to two, hit the dirt in three. Then you move to a different place, get up, ten, that, that's how you do it. But you have to train to do that. He doesn't know to do that. Nobody told him. Maybe nobody told him that this is dangerous. He grabs the ammo pouch, gets up, and just starts jogging over to Vito. Bullets are flying everywhere. And I'm looking at this guy. He's out of his mind. And I'm thinking to myself, this, this is going to be bad. I'm going to have to explain not only what's he doing here, but how he get killed. But of course, Prakhar had a different plan. He didn't get killed. He just runs over there. Plops himself down. And I'm like, okay. Because Prakhar runs the world. And the rest of the story happened, whatever happened. Now, when everything calms down, and it takes a while for things to calm down, because the battalion sends troops, and the Magad himself gets there, and they, you know, there was a radio helicopter in the air. They came down, and they wanted to interview the whole story. They brought more troops in. We had to create a tabat. It took a few hours to things finally calm down. And I see this Ayn Rabatz, and he's like sitting on the side, not far from where the tracker's sitting. So I walk over to him, and I said, listen, what you did was unbelievable. And I really should put you up for like a medal of valor, and he tore us. Because like, under fire, like that's a terrifying thing to do. With no training, you just ran over there, and the whole unit, everything that happened here happened because you did that. I should put you up for an award. But if I put you up for an award, you and me are going to jail. So this story is going to stay between us forever. And he didn't care, like he wasn't looking for any medals, like you know, he had a good story to tell his mother when he came home, I don't know, whatever it is. Like, you get into situations sometimes, that are so mind-boggling that you can't even wrap your head around them. So what's the feeling when you, that you feel in a moment like that? And I could say the words to you. It won't do justice to the experience. There's certain moments in your life that you suddenly understand that Shem is just looking out for you. Shem's just watching over you. He's given you this gift. You're absolutely sure you're not going to make it up that hill. You're actually preparing yourself. I was actually debating in my head whether I should say Vidu. You're not supposed to be here. And the next thing you know, Hashem says, you know what? You got good things to do. We'll just fix it. But I want you to know that this is not you doing this. This is me. So Hashem says, I'm going to create this scenario that's so crazy. Like if it hadn't been for the nine robots, maybe I'd think like, look at me, I'm so trained. I did. But then you realize this is all in Kosh Baruch This has nothing to do with you. And you have this moment of pure gratitude. There's just no other way to describe it. Pure, raw, unadulterated <coughs> gratitude. Now, why do I bring that up? Because that's the beginning of this parsha. The beginning of parsha Kitavo. Fascinating topic, right? Viaya, Kitavo el By the way, pay attention. It doesn't say Kitavo, plural, all of you. It says when you individual come to the land. Why do you think it does that, by the way? Because that's how that's how you earn this place. You earn this place when you're together. When you're one, when you're unified. When you're apart and you're other and disunified, then you lose this place. It's that simple, right? First base of Minko, second base of Minko, it's a little scary when you think about what's going on in the country today. Every two Jews that create unity, they bring a little gula, a little redemption into the world. 
And there'd be two Jews to fight or argue, they push us a little away from the redemption. So a place like this, where all of you come together from so many different places, and put aside all your differences, and there are many, and say, this year we're brothers, you have no idea the impact that that has on Am Yisrael and on Eretz Yisrael. So when you come to the land, when you're unified, Asher Hashem Elokechem Noten Lecham, that Hashem gives to you, which is an interesting question. Well, duh, obviously it's the land Hashem gives you. Why is that important to say here? Okay. Asher Hashem Elokechem Noten Lecham Nechalah, that Hashem gives you inheritance, V'yirashta V'yashavta Ba. And you will conquer this land and you will dwell in it. Then, then take the first of the fruits of the land, and so on and so forth. And we call this Bikuri. These are from the word Bechor, the firstborn. These are the first fruits. And the story of what you do for the first fruits is itself fascinating. Right? The farmer, the Rambam, describes this in Hilchos Bikurim. Where would I find Hilchos Bikurim, Shanabet? Sefer Zraim, right? Seventh book, right? In Sefer Zerayim, in the Book of Agriculture, we'll get to this in our Rambam Shirim. The Rambam says as follows. Um, I don't find it. Ketzad mafrishina bikurim. Bikurim is a fascinating, it's a fascinating halacha. Right? First of all, um, bikurim are not brought anywhere but in Eretz Yisrael. Okay? If you have, uh, you know, fig trees in New Jersey... Nothing to it. You don't bring Bikurim, which is kind of funny. Because if the whole thing is that you're grateful for the harvest that you just had, right, for the fruits that Hashem gave you, why wouldn't you do this in Chutzlaus? Why wouldn't you do this in Tinek? I would think you need to do it more in Tinek, but okay. Right? Nope. Doesn't apply in Chutzlaus. One more mitzvah you don't get to do. Right? And it's also interesting that this is one of the 24 matnot kahuna. It's one of the 24 gifts you give to the Karnim. Right? But it's only eaten in Yerushalayim. Right, you have to bring these fruits up to your shalim. They can only be eaten in your shalim. They're eaten by karnim in the state of Kedusha. So, right? so what does the Rambam say? How do you set aside these first fruits? Okay, this is in Perak Bet, Halacha Yudtet, okay, chapter 2, the 19th Halacha. Yored Adam Vatoch Sadeu. person goes down to his field. Viroeteina Shebachra. Right? Eshkol Anavim Shebachru. Imon Shebachra. He sees, I don't know, a fig. That, that has ripened, or a, a cluster of grapes that's ripe, right? Or a pomegranate that's ripe. So what does he do, right? Koshran begami. He takes like a reed and ties a reed around that food. He says, I designate, this food is going to be for my bikurim. Okay? These will be bikurim. nasim bikurim. Even though they're not completely ripe. He says, this is going to be a good ripe Fruit, this is going to be my bikurim. And he does this with a number of fruit. We'll forget about the details and the measurements, whatever. And that's bikurim. And when they're fully ripe, and he picks them, right? Minakarka, off the ground, because they fall off the tree when they're... He doesn't have to designate them again. Now, this is really interesting. So let me ask you a few questions. First of all, when does the mitzvah of bikurim apply? So Rashi is very clear on this topic, and this is based on the Gemara, right? Rashi says, since it says, you will conquer it. So Rashi says, Right? 
you don't have a chiyuv, there's no obligation to bring Bikurim until you've conquered the land and settled it. So for example, if we're in the middle of battle, we're in the middle of war, right? And you know, we're encamped outside of, I don't know, Hebron, and there's a field there, and I plant some trees, and we're going to be there a while, and the tree grows, and there's fruit there, right? Putting aside for the moment that it's only a certain type of fruit, the Shiva Minim, has to be a fig, or a date, or a pomegranate, right, etc., etc., and it ripens, no Bikurim. Why? Because we're still conquering the land. Okay. Once you've conquered, once you've settled, now I can understand that. What would be an obvious reason why the Bikurim, the first fruits that I bring as a sign of gratitude, doesn't apply until I finish conquering? What's the obvious reason? What do you think? What do you think? Why would I not bring Bikurim? Right? You still haven't conquered the land. Yeah, you're still, you're, you're not ready to be grateful because you're still fighting. Gratitude comes when you're done, right? I wasn't grateful being shot at. I was grateful when I knew I was going to live. Okay, so that makes sense. That's interesting. So, but this, this mitzvah is a mitzvah of gratitude, right? The, 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 um, mm-hmm. you come to the coin, right? And you appreciate, and you sing. And basically what you're saying is, where we came from, this long journey that we took, and you shall rejoice, and we're all good at the same game. Take a moment to appreciate what a gift this is. Gratitude. Why is gratitude only in Eretz Israel? You're not grateful for your business? You're not grateful for your farm in, 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 in Florida? Why is it only after we conquer the land? I would think the opposite. I would think like gratitude should be every minute of every day. Right? Why is it only in Yerushalayim? And, and why, why is Bikurim designated when the fruit are ripening? If you're going to be grateful and gratitude process starts when you finish conquering the land, then wouldn't you think that the gratitude process should be when you finish the harvest, right? When I finish the harvest and all the fruit is in, then I'm ready to do Bikurim. Nope, gotta do Bikurim when the fruit is ripening. Why is that? It's a very strange process. And one more question. This is very interesting. So this is Sifri, and we don't have a Sifri. I couldn't find the Sifri. I thought we had one. We didn't have one. So I found a quote in the Gemara in Shabbos. It's not exactly the same. But the Gemara in Shabbos says as follows. Okay? Um, this is on Daf Lamed Zayin. 37th. 32nd. second. Uh, one second. Um, no, sorry. Is it? Apologize. Been a long day. Yeah. Yeah. This is Gemara in Kedushan and Daf Lamed Zayin. I'm a bet. The Bay Rabbi Ishmael. Rabbi Ishmael says, or the base manager of Rabbi Ishmael says, I say mitzvah zu, do this mitzvah. I'm going to say this line. Somebody asked me a question. You ready? I say mitzvah zu, shebishvilat tikanes laaretz. Do this mitzvah bikurim, because in the merit of this mitzvah, you will enter the land. Ask me an obvious question. Yes. 
Uh, if you only do Bikurim after you conquer the land, how can the mitzvah of Bikurim merit you to enter the land? It doesn't make sense. Now, all the Mepharshim talk about this. So Rav David Pardo, who's a commentator on the Sifri, which is where this originally appears, he thinks it's a mistake. He says this can't be. It can't be that the mitzvah only occurs after you conquer the land, and yet in the merit of this mitzvah you conquer the land. So it can't be. This is a mistake. That's a very dangerous way to... Comp- like just, okay, it must be a mistake. That's, that's a last resort, right? Mechassim um, Sofer says, no, it's not talking about the mitzvah of Bikurim. It's talking about the mitzvah that precedes the mitzvah of Bikurim. What's the mitzvah? If Bikurim is the first mitzvah in Kitavo, what's the last mitzvah in Parashat Kitetzei? Anybody remember? Destroying Amalek, right? Destroying Amalek. If you fulfill the mitzvah of destroying Amalek, then you will enter the land and you can do Bikurim. And there's a logic to that, right? And there are a few other answers. But I saw an amazing piece from a Zweig, a Rev in Florida, and I just thought this was a good idea to share with you at the beginning of the year, right? There's a Gemara in Shabbos, and it says the following. Because remember, our question is that it says that in the merit of this mitzvah, tikanes laaretz, you will merit to enter the land, Right? So, there's a word in Shabbos in Daflam at Beis that says the following. Tanya Rabbi Shmuel ben Elazar. Rabbi Shmuel ben Elazar says, Be'avon shnei dvarim. For two iniquities, for two big transgressions, Ameharatzot, people who are ignorant, right? Die. Meaning that their life is not meaningful. They're missing something. Al shekorim la'aron ha-kodesh arna. If they call the aron ha-kodesh, right? The ark that holds the Torah, just an aron. They don't understand it's Kedusha. Right? You just think that that's just a closet, right? And that you call the Beit Knesset a Beit Am. Now, what's the difference between a Beit Knesset and a Beit Am? So Rashi explains, Beit Am is Lashon Bizui Shemit Kabzin You call it a place where the people come to gather. It's just a gathering house. Let's go to the meeting hall. And the meeting hall is the base members because that's where we are. If you call this place a meeting hall, that's disgraceful. And for that, you deserve to die. So the Marsha asks a very good question. He says, I don't understand. You're not supposed to call it a Beit Am because that's a meeting hall. What do you think Beit Knesset means? Beit Knesset means a meeting hall. So the Marsha, Marsha was an Achron, lived in the 1600s of Shimon Edels. He actually took the name of his mother-in-law who supported him saving that one for my mother-in-law's birthday, right? And uh, if you ever, by the way, have difficulty with an Agatha, with a story in the Gemara, the Marsha is one of the go-to people to go to. This is what the Marsha says. Marsha says, what does it mean of Beit Knesset? The Beit Knesset no muskar shalmihi, ela shel kolel am Yisrael et Baruch When we call a place of Beit Knesset, what we're saying is that we're all gathered together. And we mean that we're gathered with Hashem. We have a place to gather and to experience the presence of Hashem. And he quotes the Pasuk, which is brought down in the first paragraph of Brachos. How do you know that Hashem resides in Shul? Hashem dwells in the midst of where we come to meet God and wherever, that's a whole Beit Knesset. Right? Masha'in came Beit Am. When you say it's just a Beit Am, then you think the purpose of this place is just for the people. It's just a gathering place, and there's no purpose for Hashem. There's nothing to do with meeting Hashem. If you think that this hall, 
it's just about sitting, schmoozing, gathering, watching Netflix, whatever it may be, then you've missed the entire point of the base measure. And for that, that disgrace, that's a big deal. But that's what Marashat says. That's a Beit Knesset, not a Beit Am. And that alone, by the way, would be a thought worthy of thinking of. We decide what this space will be for us. Is this a place, you know, one of the interesting questions that comes up every year. If somebody's reading a good book on, I don't know, The Six Day War. Anybody here read Michael Oren's The Six Day War? Six Days? It's an amazing book, The Six Day War. Um, a lot of interesting stuff, some powerful stories. It's not for the base manager. It's a book about Six Day Wars on a place of Torah. Right? Not that there's not a value to reading a book like that. Right? By the way, just point for reference. If I call something bathroom reading, that doesn't mean I'm denigrating it. It just means it's a different energy. Right? Most of my knowledge in Jewish history comes from reading Jewish history in the bathroom. Right? I did that over years, starting in high school. And the Vilna Gaon studied mathematics in the bathroom. But that's very different when you're studying the base manners. No, don't kid yourself. Kramer's theory, is that or is that not? Uh, you can ask Quincy about that. Uh, the Vilna Gaon, Elijah Kramer. But nonetheless. Right? Okay, so a Beit Am is not a Beit Knesset. It's something different. But there's an interesting, and we're almost done. There's a fascinating Rambam. The Rambam in Hilchos Tefillah says the following. I'm going to read this line. Now, some of us already learned Rambam, some of us didn't. So I'm just going to point out again. Rav Chaim Brisker believed that every single word in the Rambam was significant. The Rambam was a throwback to a time when you didn't write things down. So whatever words he used, if the Rambam says it's Pater, or he says it's Aser, or he says it's Chayev, or he uses the language of Eitzah, those are totally different terminologies, and every word is significant. So listen to this sentence in the Rambam, okay? Kol makom, this is the beginning of the 11th parak in Hilchos Tila. Kol ma, in the laws of prayer, which of course is in Sefer, you may know? What's Sefer with Hilchos Tila? Do you remember? Nope, it's not in Zmanim. It's in Ava, because Tfila is an act of love for Hashem, and we'll talk about that in Hilchos Tila. Right, the Rambam was a master organism. Kol makom, any place where there are 10 Jews, any place where there are 10 Jews, living in a Chvesnish land, right? they have to have a place, a house, where they make, right? that people can gather together for Tfilah, all the time, right? that there is Tfilah, and this place is called the Beit HaKneset. So that's why I guess it's a very good question. It says, some of this is superfluous. What is superfluous here? Any place where there's a million of ten Jews, you have to have a house where people can gather together, and that place is called the Beit HaKneset. Why does the Rambam add where people can gather together? Obviously, if you have a house, and it's called the Beit HaKneset, and you're davening there, it's because you're gathering there. Why does he add those words? It says, because... The word likanes does not only mean together. The word likanes, knisa, right, is, is a place where we connect to Hashem. You come to a Beit Knesset, and this is how Rav Zweig understands the Marasha. The difference between a Beit Am and a Beit Knesset is the Beit Knesset is a place where you're not just gathering, you're gathering to connect to Hashem. That's what a Beit Knesset is. What does it mean that the mitzvah of Bikurim, that in the merit of the mitzvah of Bikurim, you will tikansula aretz? It doesn't mean you'll enter the land physically. It means this is what will connect you to Eretz Yisrael. Which leaves us with one last question. 
if Bikurim is all about gratitude, right? And the reward for Bikurim is that we will connect to Israel. How does gratitude allow me to connect? Now think about this for a minute, right? Think about this for a minute. We're going to learn in Hevos Tshuva that the first stage in doing Tshuva, Tshuva comes from the word Lashuv, to get back to who we want to be, is Hakarat Achet. The first thing you have to do is recognize you're making a mistake. Right? If, if, uh, if, if a guy walks into the basement and he stubs his toe and all of a sudden, foul filth, foul, foul filth. And everybody turns around and is like, dude, like, what's up with that? And he's like, well, what's the problem? Foul filth, foul filth. What's the foul filth, foul filth problem? He doesn't think there's anything wrong with that. If he doesn't think there's anything wrong with that, he's not going to fix it. Never mind how he fixes it, what he has to do. So hakarata chait, recognizing you're making a mistake, that's a big deal. Hakarata tov, recognizing that there's good in your life, is exactly the opposite of hakarata chait. It's preventing yourself from ever getting to that stage of chait. Gratitude allows me to appreciate the gifts I've been given. What is the greatest challenge of the gifts we're given? What you do with them. I remember this feeling vividly. I was in a pizzeria. It's a longer story for another time. I was in a pizzeria. Terrorist walked into this pizzeria. Blew himself up. 15, now actually 16 people were murdered. Uh, over 60 people were injured. And by some nace, I walked out without a scratch. Let me tell you something. When you get home after an experience like that, you give your children a hug on a whole different level. I'll never forget coming home. The kids always come to the door. You know, when they were little, they used to come and, you know, hello. And I was giving them this. My, my daughter, especially, was going into sixth grade. I give her this hug. And she looks at me like, Abba, is everything okay? Like, what's going on? Like, that's not a normal hug. You have this moment of appreciation, right? I had a daughter who had a brain tumor. She was five years old. Most intense month of my life. She's getting married in three weeks. You can imagine, Mirza Hashem. And I didn't know that that would be the case back then. When we walk her down the aisle, that's a moment of pure gratitude. What do you do with that gratitude? When you walk away from, from being in a bombing, from, from being in an ambush, from, from being in a car accident, you have a moment to say, Hashem decided that the world's better off with me in it. How do I know that? Because I'm here. What do I do with that? Do I live up to the gift that I've been given. Gratitude connects me because it means that I've been given something that that that, that gift is part of what I'm doing here. <clears throat> now I want to tell you something. Jews have been dreaming about doing what we're about to do this year for 2,000 years. For 2,000 years, if you walk through these alleyways, they were empty. They were quiet. There's no one here. When the Ramban comes to Eretz Yisrael in 1267 and eventually makes it to the old city of Yishalayim, he barely finds a minion. Right? There are more people in this place, Menorish. Right? This, this is like a third of the population of the country when the Ramban came. And here we sit. We're sitting in a hole built by crusaders a thousand years ago who were determined to destroy every last vestige of who we were. We're going to visit ruins of the Roman Empire. And 2,000 years later, we are here learning Torah, speaking an ancient vernacular that's been turned into a modern language. Do we understand what a gift we've been given? Do we, do we rise up to the challenge of just the gratitude of this moment? That's the challenge of Bikurim. That's the challenge of Bikurim. 
You know, so so when the when the fruit is ripe, that's that's the point where Hashem has done his bit. The rain has fallen, the fruit has ripened, now it's on you. Now you gotta do the harvest. Now you gotta bring in the work. Just as you're about to start all that work, because when you finish the harvest, it's very easy to think, look what I did. Take a moment to appreciate what a gift it is. You're sitting down one night and you finally crack your first toast roast. I want you to know. When you get to that, if you get to that, not everybody does, that's an unbelievable feeling. It's worth every penny of work that you put into it. I still remember, like, must be 40 years ago, what it was like to sit in the basement, it was 1 o'clock in the morning, I wouldn't let it go, and I finally cracked my first toast. It was like seven or eight months into the year. What a feeling. Understand how a toast has mechanics of the world. You feel, look what I did. When you have a moment like that, take a pause. Well, why did I do that? I did that because I really wanted to crack a toast. Well, who gave me that ratzon? All of this comes from Akash Baruch And if we can really know that everything comes from Hashem, that everything carries a certain responsibility, and that we have to live up to that gift, then we'll have a different year. So I give everybody bracha, bezrat Hashem. This should be an amazing, amazing Shabbat. We'll talk about what that's going to be. It's going to be an amazing Shabbos. That leads to an amazing week. That leads to an amazing El. It leads to an unbelievable year. The best year of your life. Until next year, obviously, when you stay on the bathroom. All right, Shabbat Shalom, everybody.